0: Welcome to Can I Get a Retake, where we explore the accomplishments of our innovative community. Each month, we speak with one of Great River Learning's higher ed instructors and authors. Together, we discuss trends in education, areas of study, and a variety of teaching styles and philosophies.
1: My name is Michaela, your marketing coordinator. My name is Michelle, your web design supervisor. And this is Great River Learning's Can Can I I Get Get a Retake? Retake? Today on Can I Get a Retake, we are speaking with Peter Cunningham. Peter is lead professor of economics at Mount Hood Community College in Oregon. Peter received his Bachelor of Arts in International Affairs from George Washington University and a Master's of Science from the London School of Economics. Peter has earned the National Association of Small Business International Trade Educators International Trade Educator of the Year Award in 2022.
0: He has over 30 years' experience in economics and international trade, directing state international trade operations, and advising multiple U.S. governors and mayors in international trade policy. Most importantly, but we're biased, Peter is the author of four GRL titles, Introduction to Economics, Principles of Macroeconomics, and Principles of Microeconomics in a Contemporary Context the impact of China, Brexit, and the USMCA on the economy. His latest title with GRL is Trade Director Diaries, Real-Life Experiences Navigating International Trade.
1: Have you ever been asked, can I get a retake?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, I haven't. I've never, uh, usually I get my takes in the first time, so I don't have to do a retake, so (laughs) no. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Then we'll just ask you to launch into your background and how you came to be where you are now as an educator.
2: Cool. Well, you know, I I, uh, started my uh, uh, studies uh, college at uh, George Washington University. Um, I always knew I wanted to do something internationally, um, but it wasn't until I took my first intro to international business course that I realized that this is trade and business economics. This is something that I really have a passion for and what I'd like to devote my career to. So for the first, I'd say two-thirds of my career, I worked in uh, government, mostly state government, federal government, helping uh, U.S. governors you know, come up with effective trade policy uh, and economic policy to deal with the challenges of globalization. And that, I wrote a lot about that in my fourth book, uh, The Trade Director Diary. So it's uh, it was an interesting... Um, you know, pathway. I, I really love the content, the training at George Washington. I did my master's work at the London School of Economics, which really um, it's a whole different approach to education, and really helped me, you know, via the Socratic method, you know, become much more inquisitive. And you know, I really love that form of teaching. And then I, I, I started teaching uh, sort of part time um, uh, back in the mid '80s. Love that too. It has, I've always had sort of this second career going. So, when I decided to retire from uh, the the uh, the politics and you know, from government, it, it made sense for me to step into this full-time role as a tenured economics instructor for Mount Hood Community College. so uh, that's that's a quick snapshot, you know, of how I've gotten to where I am today,
1: yeah. And we really wanted to talk to you a bit about what that trade director role looks like. So, I guess, could you explain, like what did you do as a trade director? What does that look like?
2: Yeah, a- it was um. It was a pretty, I started out as the international trade specialist, kind of as a junior role. And that, that position was more um, working with companies, helping them identify markets for their products and services globally, helping to create jobs in the various states that I worked in. That was a really great sort of foundation. Um, I got my first chance to work as a trade director uh, for Wyoming Governor Mike Sullivan. He, uh, I, I was working in Colorado as a trade specialist and I had a chance to meet him, and he had just been elected, and wanted to do more for job creation for Wyoming, and felt that this would be a great uh, way to put some energy into trade development, helping small and medium-sized companies in Wyoming find markets uh, globally. So that's how I got into that, helping to write uh, marketing plans for the companies. I wrote the marketing plan for the state. You know, we had a, it was a really interesting and exciting uh, period of my career.
0: I have noticed that you have worked in different states across the country, totally different regions. Um, Was there a lot of um, cultural difference even between the Southwest versus New England?
2: No question. Yeah, I'm I'm originally from upstate New York. So, you know, I was pretty familiar, you know, uh, with uh, that part of the country. But um, moving to the South was a big challenge for me. (laughs) North Carolina, you know, I had a really good friend who was the trade director for Mississippi. We actually wrote one of the books together, Liz Cleveland. And she made me do a a test of, you know, what it takes to be a Southerner. And of course, I failed it, you know, horribly, you know, but she, you know, I think what really helped shape me throughout my career was um, I got to, you know, I learned all the content and knowledge from the academic training and the practical experience at West as you know a director and specialist. But, you know, then I, I had this amazing uh, boss in North Carolina, uh, Secretary Jim Fain, who ran the Department of Commerce for North Carolina. He was very distinguished statesman and just very cool calm you know he helped me kind of t- take all my energy and enthusiasm for trade and you know my approach to you know life and he sort of you know be uh, you know more cool about it right and just just be you know uh, he had I had to adapt to the southern culture I couldn't go in gangbusters like I had in previous states you know up in the northeast or you know out west so it was a really good training for me and I uh, probably one of the highlights of my career is working in North Carolina. That was the height of globalization, so many, we lost so many jobs due to companies relocating their textile plants, their furniture plants, you know, all these different um, technology plants offshore to China, India, Vietnam, so we had to move quickly to figure out how to, you know, adjust to that economy, and all that was, I've included in the book, the Trade Director Diary, some of the, you know, what I learned in terms of that process.
1: I also saw that you were on a lot of different trade missions, when you went abroad what were your goals you know what was your goal to bring back to the government governors and you know your plans in the state department
2: yeah well you know um there is kind of a again we wrote this this is included in the book we have a whole section devoted to you know doing what it takes to organize a trade mission trade missions 101 but um my first trade mission i led in the first uh, first time in the eight, uh, mid 80s 87 i was in colorado I had a, again a, an amazing regional manager at the Department of Commerce Sam Serato, uh, who gave me the opportunity to organize and lead this trade mission to uh, Italy Sweden and uh, the uh, Holland basically so the Netherlands and you know it was a challenging job you know recruiting companies getting them to commit you know so many resources small companies for senior executives to be away from their company for so long that's a big job so we we you know we we scaled it down to like a, basically a, about a two-week period. We came back with six million dollars in projected sales, you know, from the meetings that we had. You know, a lot of work. You know, Commerce has some amazing uh, operations globally. They're commercial operations based out of the U.S. embassies and consulates. It's, it's their job to help small and medium-sized companies find partners to generate jobs in you know various U.S. states. So. They were great. It was a really wonderful experience. The recruitment aspect was brutal, getting you know six plus companies to make it worthwhile, and then to plan everything. I had to go over to an advance mission to make sure all the I's were dotted and t's were crossed, meet my partners in the various locations. But you know, we had a big success, and I was again a, b- a big highlight. And it gave me a taste for trade missions and really gave me an edge as I went on into my career to work for various governors. I had that experience under my belt. I knew how to plan a governor's trade mission without you know too much uh, trouble. To various countries globally.
1: Yeah. Um.
0: Just, I'm I'm curious for your expertise when it comes to global trends, policies, markets. So, what should the average layperson be aware of or be following?
2: Well, uh, one of the, um, you know, one of the, my favorite chapters that I wrote in uh, both the micro book and the Trade Director Diary book is the, you know, sort of international trade 101, on where we go from back to uh, Ricardo. know when he was uh you know the original developer of comparative advantage theory in the 1700s he um you know we start with that and then we come to modern day how do we how do we deal with the challenges of globalization today and you know so basically um there are a lot of i try to frame the 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 learning in a way that so students walk away understanding the history but they understand how it applies today right it's not we don't just want to know a bunch of theory from the 1700s we want to know Okay, what, why should I care about international trade today? What, why should the Smoot-Hawley Act, you know, in the 1930s, be relevant today? We, what did we learn in the 30s during the Great Depression when we raised the highest levels of protectionism ever in the history of global economics, right? And, and what happened? I mean, we, it was the worst economic downturn we've ever experienced. So there are lessons to be learned, you know, from history in in trade. And you know, I try to frame it in a way, and I actually have a, a few. Um, surveys that I do, interactions with the students, where after they've been exposed to the history, I ask them, "Well, you know, are you? You've learned all the different approaches to international trade. Are you a free trader? Are you a fair trader? Are you a protectionist? Right?" And so it's interesting to you know get the feedback from the students and have that discussion. I just want to have them aware of that, you know, when they leave these courses and when they leave these, uh, finish the you know these uh, actual chapters in the various books. So it's a, it's a really for me, it's very satisfying to have had all these experiences and be able to translate them into basic understanding for the average person, so they know when they're hearing a politician talk about, oh, protectionism is good for our country. They have a background to say, well, mm, is that really our history? Is that you know, do uh, m- maybe it, for some people that works, you know, but others, you know, we need to look at the big picture and what what do we learn from history.
1: Yeah. Well, and going back to Michelle's question about cultural within the United States, when you traveled internationally, I'm sure that there were a lot of cultural differences and changes. I mean, what was that like to have to, you know, meet people from a lot of different countries?
2: Yeah, it's a, you know, that's what convince them to
1: do business with you too. (laughs) right,
2: (laughs) Right. That's what really attracted me to the field of international trade and international business, because, you know, there's so many variables nothing is ever the same right but you you have to learn about the different cultures if you're going to be successful in doing business there and you know in chapter 2 in the trade director diaries i talk about doing business in japan right in japan in you know, like many asian cultures you don't just arrive you know meet your potential business partner and sign a contract and fly back home it's not like that you have to you know, build relationships, you have to build trust, you have to go out and you have to sing karaoke and you have to have dinners. And, you know, there's a long, it's a lengthy process. It's a, you know, a huge commitment to, you have to do your research. Is this market really big enough to justify all this time and investment, you know, of money, as well as your time, you know, to develop this market. But, you know, of course, Japan's one of the top five markets globally. So it's really important. I had the same experience in Mexico, right? Right after NAFTA was signed in the the 90s, I, I took so many trade missions to uh, Mexico City, to uh, Monterey and Nueva León and to uh, Guadalajara. You know, there's so many Western U.S. companies that have no connection to Mexico because it had been perceived as a, an economy with limited potential for, for sales, right? So we had to start from the ground up. But again, it's tiempo latino. You know, you don't just go to Mexico and start doing business. You have to, you know, build relationships. It's not quite as extreme as Japan, but it's still... There has to be trust. There has to be willingness to uh, work together and to get to know each other first before we open the doors for business.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, So you have four titles of JRL, I believe, correct? Yeah, four titles. That's right, yeah. (laughs) Um, What was your key motivation to create your own digital materials?
2: Um, Well, you know, I was approached by one of your former colleagues, uh, Mary Hem. And she reached out to me at a time when I was kind of frustrated, you know, with other materials that were out there. We had some, there were good materials out there, but what I found with the traditional uh, publisher's model was, you know, you write something and then it's, you know, four years later, you do another edition and two years later, another edition. And, you know, you're always behind what's happening, you know, in the, you know, in your field, right? For example, during that time, Brexit was a hot issue in the UK. And, you know, was Britain going to, you know, leave the EU? Was it going to leave the You know, what what were the impacts of all that? You know, it's a very hot issue. There were no publications discussing this because it was so up to the minute. So I thought, when Mary approached me, I thought this would be great. You know, here's my chance to take all my stories and put them in one place. Um, Here's a chance for me to um, frame the discussions, frame the education. So from my perspective, looking backwards, if I had known about, you know, the different schools of thought, you know, as from chapter one, you know, in economics, that would really help me understand, you know, you know, as I learned the different theories, oh, am I a Keynesian, you know, do I believe in government intervention, am I a classical economist who just feels that, you know, let the market decide that, you know, we shouldn't be involved, am I a you know, uh, you know, neoclassical, you know, economist during the Reagan administration, the Reaganomics, which is a reinvention of of classical economics for the 1980s, so all these different things, you know, the training was really, it was very, um, you know I wanted to frame all this for the students to make it easier for them and, and so I thought you know with Mary giving me this opportunity I thought this is this is a great idea for me to organize the way I want and uh and uh, bring some current videos into the um the, uh, the the publication and to and also to be able to change it as often as I need to which I love I don't have to wait for two years to until uh, the next public next publication deadline or edition to make it work so students get up to the minute um trends which is important you know i mean inflation is the hot issue right now right so we talk about you know why did uh chairman powell wait so long and chairman of our federal reserve to begin reducing interest rates you know normally you don't you know you start inter- inter- intervening once interest rates you know inflation gets above two percent right and he waited till it was like eight nine percent so it's you know we that's a really good discussion we're having right now in the classes
1: do you have any um tips or like things that you help your students with in class to prepare them for like a trade director life?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a part of my job as a, you know, a, a tenured economics instructor at Mount Hood Community College. You know, part of my job is advising, right? So I have to advise the students. So yeah, a lot of them come to me. Uh, you know, I love, I just had one student who um, decided to major in economics as a result of these courses. And yeah, he just, he's just one, um, I actually created a scholarship. At the college, you know, all of my royalties for the books that I sell to the college go directly into a scholarship fund for students for econ econ majors. So I'm trying to encourage the next generation to, you know, really focus on this area and really um, build core competencies and and you know contribute contribute to the field. So you know, it's it's kind of interesting to, to help students along that journey to give them advice about you know what schools to go forward to, what bachelor's programs have the best you know. Uh, programs for uh, international trade and international business or economics in general. So that's a really, that's a very satisfying part of the job for me as well.
0: Yeah. When it comes to some of the, the methods you learned at LSE, for example, that Socratic method, are you able to apply that method to your own courses?
2: Oh, very much so. You know, um, You know, it's a little harder in the asynchronous courses, you know, where it's, we're not really interacting, you know, via Zoom. Um, or, you know, in person, but now, you know, things are opening up again. I'll be back uh, teaching some in-person classes this winter and this uh, next spring back on campus. So, you know, I typically, you know, I'll bring the publication up on the, on the screen and we'll talk about the learning objectives. We'll talk about the material, we'll watch the videos and, you know, then we'll have some discussions, right? And that's, that's, that's part of the Socratic. I love, I learned more from that when I was in grad school than studying PowerPoints and reading the book and highlighting the book and, you know, the old fashioned way of, you know, absorbing a lot of information
0: right Uh, what I love
2: about this this format is it's very modern and allows the students to use all this you know material that are at their fingertips to learn and and to move forward in their careers
1: right you kind of started talking about my next question which is you know what kinds of things did you not like about other books that you made sure that you included in your books
2: yeah I just I think the key thing for me was the ability to edit it you know, and add new material, right? And uh, you know, const Brexit has been one example where I've, we've gone back and as as it's evolved, you know, added new material, especially to the trade director diaries and to the micro text. But um, you know, I just it's it's a lot of work, right? You know, I won't. It, it took a lot of time. My first uh, book that I did was the micro book, and uh, my advice to any instructor considering this would be to um, choose. Some, a chapter that you're really passionate about right? It's easier to write about things you really love and are you know and I chose of course no surprise I chose the international trade chapter to I wrote I had like 12 learning objectives and went on and on for pages and pages and because I had a lot to say and a lot of experience a lot of interest I was I was excited to you know have my best practices all my experiences put somewhere finally you know where it can be of use and not just in my head right so
1: yeah
2: uh, it's the the flexibility is great you know the ability to uh, to you know structure the, the book, which you think makes the most sense based on your experience. I mean, all my, my chapters started with, you know, let's talk about the history first. Let's, you know, talk about the schools of thought. I wish I'd had that, you know, when I was a freshman in college, you know, so. Um,
0: yeah. That's I- how to into my next question, which is kind of what were, if we have aspiring authors maybe listening, what were the pros and cons of that development process for you?
2: Yeah, well, you know, it was, for me, it was worth giving it a try. Um, you have to be super disciplined, right? Uh, you know, we, when you have a participation agreement in place, you know, you map out, you know, I'm going to finish chapter one this week and chapter two this week, or maybe I'm going to go to chapter seven first and then finish chapter, you know, whatever. It just, you have to have a, for me, I, it, um, I was, able, I'm at my most creative part in the morning, you know, I can sit down and close everything off and just focus on the writing um i'd spend about one or two hours a day each weekend um just you know cranking out the various chapters on the various topics so it, you have to be disciplined but the cool thing is the, you know, your editors really are super in terms of helping us map out a plan and you know we can adapt it as we go forward but it is uh it's really a um uh you know it, it's uh, it's a, you know, there's a lot of support there i was amazed by the you know we have ed- you have editors to help with the actual writing and production of the of the, of the content but then you have also creative graphic people that can help choose the right images and you know all that. It's it's, it's a beautiful sort of a partnership where we all work together. So it, once you've done one, it was it was easy for me to to do the other three. I had I had a pretty good you know sense of what the the workload was going to be, and I tried to do this like during the summer when I wasn't quite so busy yeah. teaching. That makes a big difference as well.
1: Do you feel like your teaching style has changed now that you have your own publications that you're using or? Do you feel like you're, you know, they're just an aid to what you are already doing?
2: I'd say it's more the latter. I mean, I've, I've always been sort of a Socratic method mm-hmm. instructor. You know, some of my students get freaked out by that because they, they're used to, you know, in high school, having their professors you know, spoon feed them everything. Here's a PowerPoint. Let's, let me go through. You don't have to do anything. Just come to class and breathe, right? Right. In my class expected to do all that, you know, before you get to class. Mm-hmm. And then we have really good discussions about what's happening, you know, in the current environment. And there's one exercise we do in uh, macro where I actually have them after we've had all the training about fiscal versus monetary policy. How do you manage a you know a macroeconomic economy? I have them. I, I'll assign them a country, right? And I make them the economic czar. And okay, you're you're in charge of the U.S. You know, of fiscal and monetary policy. First of all, who's in charge of fiscal policy for the U.S. And who's in charge of monetary policy? And I created this video um, of a 747 showing you know what it takes to manage an economy and we actually produced it together with uh, uh grl and um the students love that because it's you know you, if, if the plane's going too fast you crash the economy if the plane's going too slow you crash the economy so, and you have four engines you know two on each side of, of the wings to kind of guide the economy so they love that kind of analogy so i have them jump in and you know they make you know advice to you know the political leadership of these various countries what should be done, you know, or, or maybe congratulations for doing what you're doing. Right. But it just, they walk out of the class with really clear understanding of how, you know, economics works. You know, it's, it's hard to get people excited about economics. It's typically been viewed as the dismal science. You know, if you ever saw uh, the movie Ferris Bueller's day off, there's one scene where the, it's the economics professor, you know, teaching the students that are in the, you know, that are in the, in the sort of the timeout and they're all, You know, falling asleep, and he's teaching monetary and fiscal policy. So I figure if I can make it more interesting, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to take that as a win.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's funny that you say that because I took micro and macro when I was in college. I don't remember any of it. Right. And I remember all of my classes except that. And I wish I remembered more of it now as an adult because obviously it's a lot more applicable once you are in the workforce and you're paying more attention to. World policy and all of that, and so now I'm like, wow. My brother, though, he's an he was an econ major, so I just have to text him and ask him.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Or just reach out to me. I'm happy to help with any questions. You sounds got. good. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It, for me, it was the same. Uh, you know, I, I really had to stick with it because I've had some professors that, you know, my first you know international trade course was it was just I mean, we would spent an entire semester on the theory of comparative advantage. I mean, you know, it's it's an important theory. But it's not really relevant to you know today. We're talking about the 1700s of you know UK versus America, and it, you know it was, it, we never saw his face. He was up at the board doing you know XX, axis XYX supply you know demand and equilibrium. It's like it made your head kind of hurt after a while. But you know I stuck with it, and I realized that you know it's important to understand this foundation. Michael Porter at Harvard kind of took that and modernized it, right? And made it more you know in the 1980s and 90s. He made it you know he wrote this book called the Com- the competitive advantage of nations and I, I i quote a lot of this in my in my books and it's just uh you know we, we talk about what does it take to be a successful uh country economically in today's you know 21st century and it's uh you know it's it's, it's about you know focusing on industry clusters and you know putting energy in, in areas where there's technology being applied you know we want the higher quality jobs being created using technology you know as the major input so he, he was way ahead of the curve in that in the in the late eighties and nineties, and, and it's still that his cluster you know theories are really it makes it more relevant to today's uh, uh, economies.
0: Yeah, speaking of technology, this is a new question that we're really asking, and that is, what do you see the effect of generative AI like GPT and its role one in your classroom and two um, its effects in the global economy.
2: Yeah. It's a little scary. I've, one of my cousins is a, uh, uh, you know, a tenure professor at University of British Columbia in, in the sciences. And, you know, a lot of his students are writing papers, right? And so the the AI is generating all the papers. It's, you know, it's really creating quite a uh, trauma in you know, that particular field.
0: Right. Yeah. In, in my
2: field, it's, you know, the students are, are graded based on competency, understanding the various, you know, learning objectives they're taking quizzes they're taking you know final exams so there's there's not a lot of writing other than the writing is that uh, we have discussion questions in our forum on blackboard every week they have to respond to each other and you know, respond to my questions you know i haven't really seen ai too much and i'm sure it's creeping in i'm sure it's there as a threat but um you know it's it's there we have we have to deal with it right it's not going away so it's uh, it's uh, you know i uh, for me, it hasn't really affected us so much in economics, but I'm sure in like in writing classes, science classes where you're writing a lot of essays, yes. it, it's a whole, you know, you have to, I'm sure there's going to be some new technology developed to to identify it and deal with it, right? That's, that's how you, that's what's been the trends in the past, right? Yeah. We, we had special, um, you know, uh, software to help identify this and to put a stop to it. Because all the students are doing really is cheating themselves, right? You, you're there to learn, right? You want to, you want to learn these skills so you can take them forward into your life.
0: Absolutely. Oh, great. And I'm just, I'm interested in how these, this broad and accessible AI is going to affect a a broad range of industries too. Mm -hmm. Just,
2: yeah, it's interesting. It's It's the fourth wave we call, in economics, we call this the fourth wave, you know, the emergence of AI. And I talk about that in the books, right? It's just the, you have to be aware it's there, right? And we have to be aware of it. And, you know, technology is going to have a huge impact, you know, over the next hundred years plus.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll happy to take you up on your offer of contacting you with questions. (laughs) Oh yeah,
2: please. Anytime. I I love it. I love to talk as you can see, right? (laughs) I'm in the right field.
1: I had a couple more things I wanted to ask you about sure. your trade missions <laughs> and traveling. Um I was wondering like did you travel with an interpreter for a lot of these missions or do you did you learn a lot of new languages?
2: Yeah, languages are not my skill ironically, you know, being an in international trade, international yeah. business. I learned that early on. I barely made it through French, right? And I tried <laughs> Chinese, I just gave up. It was just too much, right? But, you know, the 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 key thing is you learn in this field, the key uh, priority of having partners right and so anytime we bring a governor to China or to you know another country where the, the it wasn't English was not you know the main language um, you know we'd have we'd hire interpreters right and there were class A interpreters right if it was a really serious big meeting you know at the high level political or business official but most most people at that level you know have studied English at university right so uh, it was rarely an issue but you know it, in formal meetings, you had to have interpreters, right? And you hired the best to make sure yeah. you know there's no, there's no miscommunication.
1: Right. That would be so stressful. Um, just worrying about whether or not you're communicating your your true intention. Yes. That's was high stakes. Is there ever <laughs> a case where knowledge of
0: or ignorance of the local norms either cost or helped a mission that you were on?
2: Uh, well, you know, Secretary Jim Fame from North Carolina was just amazing. He was so he just worked so hard right he, you know he we do the briefing packets and he'd be working up to the minute to add whatever was in the current newspaper articles that morning into his speeches to show he was in tune with what's happening you know in that community mm-hmm. um, we you know we had a 9-11 had just happened right and we were just uh we were all kind of freaked out we were planning a major trade mission to japan um it was actually a regional mission we had uh there's an organization called SUSE. Southeast US Japan organization, and it was started uh, post World War II to strengthen relationships between southern states and Japan uh, in the area of foreign direct investment and uh, trade development. So, it, and every year they would like one of the southern states would host it and then it would go back to another region of Japan and vice versa so it's a big you know, long term deal i'm sure it's still going on, so we. Uh, you know, we we had a decision to make, it was about a week or two after 9-11, you know, should we cancel the mission, right, and all the other states that were on this mission with us, or seven other states, they all canceled, except, and I, I advised the Secretary, I said, look, you know, this is probably the safest time ever to travel, you know, in uh, the history of aviation travel, it's going to be super, super safe, um, you know, I think it's our role as government leaders to established confidence and stability back into the uh, market. So I think it really makes sense for us. I think we'll make, you know, a bigger uh, impact if we go ahead. It may not be perfect. We may, you know, we don't, we shouldn't require people to come with us or they don't want to come. We lost about two thirds of our mission, but a, a day or two before we left, you know, quite a few people decided to come along at the last minute and they were really glad they did. But when we arrived in Japan, you know, normally we would meet with like the senior vice president of corporations, or we'd meet with these various, you know, mid-level managers. We met with the president of every corporation because we we're the only ones there, right? And, and there was such outpouring of of uh, you know sadness and concern and you know empathy for what happened, you know. And it's just it was um, he was amazing. He was he was on like the Today Show of Japan. You know, we had it was just an amazing experience and. Um, I'm, I'm that was, you know, we had that hard discussion and I'm so glad we came to that conclusion. I gave him the strong advice that we should go for it. Other people were saying, no, no, it's too scary. No, we shouldn't do it. No, let's push it a year. And that was, a, I'll never forget that because it was a really incredible mission. We actually went from Tokyo to Nagoya, where uh, it's a center of the automotive industry for Toyota. And, you know, we, again, we've had long-term relationships with uh, the uh, Toyota, they've, you know, we've uh, we've had a lot of Japanese investment into North Carolina at that period, no big, no big plants, like there's no big, Mercedes never came, Toyota never came, Nissan never came, we, uh, North Carolina was unwilling to give the uh, in excessive uh, incentives to make that work, right, so we would get like the smaller suppliers, but anyway, we met with Ice and AW, which is a, um, uh, they made uh, um, transmissions for Toyotas, right, and We went out karaokeing and oh my God, it was, you know, we were also stressed out and exhausted, but, you know, we made the, a a really strong connection with them during that particular uh, mission. And they decided to invest uh, in North Carolina as a result of that. Virginia was on the table. They, they stayed home, you know, they missed the opportunity. We were able to translate that, you know, courage and that leadership into actual jobs that were being created, you know, in North Carolina as a result. That's my, that's my positive story my negative story oh boy i had i won't tell you the state we had we i had one um senior political official from the u.s i'll I'll leave it at that who uh, was quite colorful and uh you know we had um we had a delegate we had the uh, ambassador from japan arriving and i was trying really hard to again strengthen relationships cultural relationships you know you know um educational relationships, all these things that are important. If we're going to attract Japanese investment to this particular state, we had to, um, you know, you couldn't just flip a switch. You had to, have, there had to be a cultural commitments, there had to be educational commitments, a big deal. So we had the ambassador coming, which is a really big deal. And um, we, uh, the political figure, you know, agreed to meet with me and to meet with the ambassador. We hit, and we uh, arrived at, uh, the point where we're all going to meet up, and he, uh, this person arrived with an entourage of people that I didn't know. I'm like, and I'm like, you know, timeout. Can we like talk over there for just a minute? What, what's going on? We're we're meeting the ambassador in like 20 minutes, and you know, you we've been through this. It's a very formal process, even though he's you know, he understands Americans and understands America. You know, it's we still have to be respectful to the cultural processes of Japan, and. You know, you'll be in the room by yourself talking to him and you know, hear your talking points. And I'm sure his staff has prepared talking points and this is how it, it's going to go, right? He's, well, no, no, these, you know, these people are my friends and, you know, they, they want to be with me in this meeting. I'm like, well, um, and, uh, but you know, this is right after the Kobe earthquake had happened. Right. So, uh, he made, he made one comment. Well, some of my friends want to donate to the Kobe, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, fund to help rebuild Kobe in Japan. I'm like, oh, Okay, I think I can sell this. <laughs> so pick up the phone, call the ambassador, said, look, with slight change of plans, um uh, we we have a small group of people here that friends of you know our senior political leader who wish to donate to the Kobe fund. Would you like me to accept the checks down here and you can meet the ambassador, you can meet the, the, the- this, this individual, oh no, 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 Peter, fine, but bring them all up. Come on, come on up to the suite, and we'll have a have a chat. Well, so up they come. I'm, I'm being very clear in the elevator. Please, you know, keep our conversation to a minimum. This is a very formal meeting. It's a very important. Uh, um, you know, we're trying to make headway with you know this ambassador. It could lead to significant investment in our state and tourism and trade. It's all you know. Please, you know, you're deputized as ambassadors. So in we go. You know. They all, they present, you know, the checks and they, they insist on photographs, of course, which the ambassador is very gracious. And then, um, you know, we're, we're supposed to go into the private room and uh, the, the, the political leader wants all these this entourage with him in the room, right? So I'm there trying to, you know, run interference. And uh, so we sit down and the first thing out of the political leader's um, uh, mouth is, you know, I really wish you had more time to spend, you know, in our particular city. I have this amazing collection of Japanese internment camp furniture on my property. And I'd really like to show you this property, this, uh, this uh, collection. It's quite unique globally, you know? And I'm like, oh my God, what
0: am
2: I oh. <laughs> I'm cool sure, that. I know it was really hard. You know, I, I, you know, everyone knew, even the entourage knew that was the wrong thing to say, right? But it was like, you know, luckily this ambassador was pretty savvy. He spent quite a bit of time in the U.S. I'm sure... We're a case yeah. to in the Japanese foreign service, you know, training about what not to do, you know, in a high level political meeting, but, uh, but my heart sank about 18,000 feet. And I just, you know, I just stepped in at that point and, and, you know, took charge of the meeting. And we focused on the talking points of the importance of trade, tourism and linkages uh, between this particular state and, you know, uh, Japan. So we got through it, but boy, it was, that was—I'll never forget that experience. <laughs> and I think the, stu- the students have told me they—they they like reading these stories. You know, it's—it yeah. <laughs> it more. It's not just you know boring you know trade theory. We we have some practical. You know, that's what we call them, the diaries. And It's our it's, it's interesting things that happened to us during that period of time, which uh, I'm glad we have a we have a place to for those stories now, which is the trade director diaries.
1: That is so stressful. I can't imagine. It's almost like a movie or like, it's a great book. It'd be a great book, just you know, as a, even if it was fiction, but it's real.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was not funny at the time. I I couldn't believe it was happening.
1: Oh God, no. It's one of those things where you can look back and laugh (laughs) at, but in the moment you wanted to die.
2: (laughs) I did everything right. I did all the talking points, keep it simple, focus, 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 you know, Uh, it just, it was, it was too much and it was too funny. And that, that's just one example. There are a lot of funny examples. And my other colleagues, you know, Liz Cleveland from the state of Mississippi, had even more outrageous experiences. Um, <laughs> and Mary Regal had some experiences, too, from the state of Wisconsin. So the three of us together, we covered the South, the Midwest, and you know, the West. It was, and, and I, of course, I traveled other states as well. But we had a, it made for a really, it makes a really interesting read. It
0: goes back to the importance of learning history, of learning cultural norms and differences, yeah. not right. only- this profession but it, across
2: the board yeah it's true it's true to be successful in you know many fields you have to have a you know broad uh background in all these areas right especially in international business you, and that's what attracted me to it you had to know history you had to know culture you had to know marketing you know you had to know law there are all these things that you know it was never ever dull never the same thing twice so yeah. that's where i got that's how i got all this gray hair <laughs> <laughs>
1: Were there any international ambassadors that embarrassed themselves, or was it only, you know, Americans that embarrassed
2: themselves? (laughs) Well, um, in my experience, you know, any high-level political figures I met with, you know, were were amazingly polished, amazingly, you know, uh, effective in their roles. Um, I can't think of any, not one that comes to mind. (laughs) But, you know, that was a challenge for us. You know, we were, here we are in these, you know, smaller states, you know, with not a lot of international sophistication trying to help these governors be, you know, project the right image, you know, project the, you know, focus on what was important so we could generate jobs, you know, that was all about job creation in our respective states so some of us were more successful than others, you know, <laughs> but it was a uh, you know, it was a learning curve because in previous to that, you know, like in back in the '50s and '60s, you know, states didn't care about international. It's all done at the federal level. It was very, they re- it became like in the '80s and '90s. They realized that there was all this opportunity for growth and development. If but uh, we just we can't leave it to the feds. We have to you know each yeah. state's got to promote their own best economic interests. So it was an interesting time to be uh, involved in all that.
1: Yeah. Well, and I love talking about things like this because there are jobs that exist that you didn't know. Like, I never knew that that was actually a job until I was researching you to prepare for the podcast <laughs> and looking at your your publications. And I'm like, oh, wow, <laughs> that's a real thing that anyone could do, you know, if you go to school for the right thing. So exactly. that's what I like exactly. about <laughs> talking with you and our other authors that we've done on the podcast so far, like. Yeah. Just about professions and careers that you wouldn't know existed. Right.
2: Yeah, it was, it was great. I, I kind of stumbled onto it. You know, it was, yeah. I always knew I wanted something international. I had, have uh members of my family that were teachers globally. So they'd come back and when I was very young, I'd be exposed to their, their experience living in Nigeria or living in, you know, Northern Canada, you know, or, uh, you know, the Caribbean, they had all these funny accents, funny clothes. And I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting from a, for a small town boy from New York state. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it wasn't until I went to college that I realized there's, there are careers out there where this is, you could do this full time. And I really, I loved it.
0: Yeah. Um, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. I feel like we could have <laughs> can multiple we could continue, podcasts, like continue on. <laughs> and, um, we we definitely like to have you on again sometime.
2: Would love to. I, it was so much fun. Thank you both for your great questions and, you know, for the opportunity to promote the books. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, I'm happy to chat with you anytime. So it's, it's always a pleasure.
0: Can yes. I ask you one, one more question? More. <laughs>
2: of course, of course, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so we do this little spiel called You're Wrong at the end. It's kind of your opportunity to rant about some kind of miscommunication or misunderstanding that people have about the industries you've been in or economics in general. So is there anything <laughs> that kind of gets your goat? Well, here's a chance to tell the world.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, the big thing for me is um, protectionism, right? It's just like just you know, during um, the Trump administration, you know, he was pursuing aggressive protectionist policies. And for any student of en- economics, international economics, international trade, you know, we've learned, I mentioned earlier in the podcast about the Smoot-Hawley, you know, laws that were passed post, you know, the, in, at the beginning of the Great Depression in the early 30s. And, it, you know, it just it sent the world into an economic downward spiral. So I, I was just shocked, you know, at, at how so many um, citizens had no, you know, had no recollection of this. You say Smoot-Holly, I don't know what you're talking about, right? It's it's a more of an academic thing for historians and for economists. But what I, I hate to see, what makes me crazy is, you know, if we're going to repeat the same mistakes we've made back in the, you know, 1930s, we, we learned from, that was the worst thing to do. The, the way you help economies recover is you focus on, you know, where we have comparative advantage, right? And, and you know, technology, Entrepreneurs, and we have to support entrepreneurs. We have to use technology as a tool to help industries evolve, and, and we don't want to. You know, what we've seen historically is if you protect an industry, they don't do anything. They just sit back and keep doing what they're doing and reaping in the profits. You know, protectionism doesn't work, right? It's we we all are better off when there's competition. I mean, not not unbridled competition. You know, there's a there's a balance. That's why I view myself as a Keynesian economist. You know that there's an there's a role for regulation we needed regulation post 2008 you know when we had the housing crisis we needed we had let those those regulations go too loose you know we had to bring that back right we had to have some regulation but not too much regulation you know so it's uh, those are my beefs right and I, I just hate to see history repeat itself when we you know when we we've, we've learned these lessons the hard way you know in during the 20th century
1: yeah that was good thank you
2: thank you so much
1: okay, thank you
2: cool. so much it's great to meet you both i really enjoyed this
1: Me too. Thank you. We'd
0: like to thank Peter again for the lively discussion and for sharing his unique experience with our audience. Our conversation really stands on its own. So I'll leave with my final thought. Peter's emphasis on practical knowledge is invaluable. And it is the retelling of these lived experiences that will ignite the next generation of economists and trade experts in a way that theory alone cannot match.
1: All of Peter's publications integrate practical knowledge and experiences, but Trade Director Diaries really delves into those tales of interfacing with local governments and sister cities throughout the world. Hands-on real-life examples are what capture students' imagination and show them what is possible for them in terms of future careers. I think anyone who teaches economics and wants to showcase this avenue their students can take should pick up this title. Can I Get a Retake? is hosted by Michelle Maniman and Michaela Albee. The show is edited by Maggie Christensen. Artwork for the podcast was designed by Michelle Maniman. Our intro and outro music was created by Coma Media. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support
0: the podcast, please subscribe, share, rate, and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. To join the conversation, you can find us on Instagram at Can I Get a Retake. For show notes and episode transcripts, visit GreatRiverlearning.com/slash podcast.